Welcome to episode 131 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined once again stateside by Courtney Nguyen. Welcome home, Courtney. Hey, thank you very much. How, how does it feel to be back for, for good for this year, for your travel schedule, tennis work-wise anyway, to be, to be done? I'm pretty okay with it. It was a, a great seven weeks in Asia. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Um, and one thing that I will say that it's like a thing that I don't, I mean, obviously, maybe a lot of people wouldn't understand this because they wouldn't be in my position. But it's fun for me to be in Asia because I actually blend in. Mm-hmm. And if and I was thinking about this a lot when I was especially in China, like I've lived my life, most of my life, obviously, being an American and being Asian, Asian American, even in the Bay Area, feeling like you didn't blend in, like that no matter what you kind of everybody kind of always saw you. Because you always like looked different than what was, you know, the majority or whatever. And for tennis in particular, going where we normally go throughout the year, I stand out even more. Like I feel that way when I'm in Paris, when I'm in Australia, when I'm in um, Charleston, Charleston, exactly. Mason, whatever it is, like it happens everywhere. Um, Even if they're used to having Asian Americans in the big Asian American population, you're still a minority. Sure. So it's like really actually kind of fun and incredibly like relaxing for me for to spend seven seven weeks in an area where I don't stand out at all and I blend in and that creates its own weird curveballs as many who hung out with me in China saw like no matter what people will try to speak Mandarin to me yeah I was gonna ask about the trade-off of that is that is that level of comfort of not sticking out worth the confusion that you strike in the hearts of everyone who sees you I mean, for seven weeks, it's a-okay. Okay. I don't mind it at all. But I mean, all, the other thing as well is that like, even from a food perspective, like when I was in China in particular, you know, a lot of Western media folks or colleagues get weirded out by the food. And I intellectually understand that. But weirdly, like I was so much happier in China. And trust me, like I'm an American. I don't eat any of the, you know, the crazy weird stuff. But there, there's still like a level of familiarity I understand that I have with the food more than some of my colleagues. So like while, and you've seen this, Ben, like I could be in Paris and like a week into the trip, be like, oh, I just want to go to McDonald's, like, and get kind of sick of, of the, of not sick of the food, but frustrated sometimes with the food. There was just something really nice about like being able to eat rice every day, which is kind of what I do anyway, when I'm at home. And I don't know. It just felt like really weirdly not foreign. And so I enjoyed it. So it was a nice, all that was to say that Asia for me in particular um, was a very nice way to cap off the season. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned Paris. So I feel like we should pause briefly to send our love over there to a city we spend several weeks in a year and all the people we know uh, in French tennis and French larger world uh, that our thoughts are with them. And we'll be back next year and know that City will obviously survive and thrive all this because you were saying, sorry to take this on a downer note, but we were saying, you know, that's what we do. We've been in those restaurant situations and everything pretty, pretty constantly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, um, you know, uh, just unspeakable, really, in terms of the tragedy and just the, the callousness and just anger and hate with which everything was was uh was done in paris last friday um but immediately my thoughts were to my friends that were there and sure enough like literally 
an hour or two before uh, the first reports came out about about what was happening in Paris, uh, you know, they were posting pictures in Paris out to dinner um, together, yeah. night, together. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and it was a, you know, harrowing and stressful, uh, you know, few hours to just make sure that they got home safely because we didn't know what the heck was going on. Yeah. You know, I mean, for me, I felt I was ja- chatting with both of them, Carol Bouchard and uh, Mathieu Barbara, mm-hmm. um, both on Twitter. Um, I was chatting with them over the weekend and and just kind of like, you know, just talking them through because I think that there is a big difference between saying, are you safe and are you OK? Yeah. I think those are two different questions. So for them, I was just like, are you guys OK? Because uh, I remember what it was like, you know, after 9-11 and I wasn't even in New York and it took a really long time for me to get over that and to understand and process everything. And um, but uh, but talking to them, it was just very, very clear that, you know, there are a lot of things that you can destroy just with bombs and guns and, you know, you can destroy buildings and infrastructure and and people but the human spirit is something you really can't and so uh Mathieu was saying that like he's like yeah my neighbors are having like a party (laughs) (laughs) he's like and I kind of don't know what to think about it but hey I mean you know what of course that would be an amazing escape um and uh and he was with was with some friends and they were just like drinking beer and watching the news and and there was just something so Parisian and French about all of it and uh, by the end of the conversation we were all laughing and you know, because that's all that you, you can do. And sometimes that's all that you need to do. Right. Um, so, uh, so yeah, stay strong Paris and please don't destroy yourself world because things are getting a little scary on both sides of the coin right now. For sure. For sure. Move on to our normal topic, which is tennis much less important, but we'll obviously carry on and live our you know lives in defiance of all that speaking of things that can't be destroyed how about maria sharapova's team spirit you guys she played fed cup she won both her matches it looked like she was gonna get her her fed cup i wouldn't say at last because she's never really tried for it before so it looked like she might get to swoop in and win a fed cup uh didn't work out that way for her though despite her best efforts and i thought really really impressive play especially against kvitova to turn that match around um but she and the russians lose to Czech Republic 3-2 uh, the team of Stritseva and Pliskova uh, different heights different personalities come together in doubles to win it for the Czechs Courtney what I guess what were your major takeaways from this Fed Cup final which I think felt like the best one that I can remember I don't have a long Fed Cup memory but it's the best one I can remember I feel well like. I mean I mean I think, final yeah I mean I think that that any final that goes down to a decisive doubles is already going to ratchet up the uh the tension and excitement in a way that 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 other finals, even if they're well contested, don't. Um, so I totally agree with that. I mean, my biggest takeaway is I'm excited for 2016 um, because even outside of just Fed Cup and what the title means to the Czechs, fourth title in f- five years, the last team, incidentally, who had won four titles in five years was the Russians. Mm-hmm. Um, and that streak ended when uh, the, the Czechs beat them in 2011, also in a decisive doubles rubber with Elena Vesnina uh, on the losing side of both matches. I feel really bad for her. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm just excited simply because from an individual performance basis, I think that, um, you know, there are, a, you know, three key players from this weekend who I think have set themselves up well for 2016. 
based on what they've done, you know, the last four, four to five weeks. And, and that's Sharapova, I think Pliskova, and also Kvitova. Um, I know Kvitova yeah. lost to, to Sharapova. I thought she played well, though. Yeah, and I thought did. that she, yeah, I mean, as I was saying on Twitter, Petra Kvitova at Fed Cup is like a platypus. And I don't get it, and I understand it, but there are just little things that, like, you kind of, in the regular WTA season, are, like, convinced our truths about Petra. Oh, she doesn't do well with pressure. She needs like a calm environment to play her best. Yeah. Um, she needs to, she needs matches under her belt to play her best. In other words, she has to play herself into form in mm-hmm. tournaments. These are things that you are convinced of as true. And then every single time she plays Fed Cup, you're like, well, fuck, that's not true at all. <laughs> like, you know, she doesn't need any of those things. And, um, and so that that's a wonderful thing to see. It just makes her just a fascinating tennis player to me. I, I just I'm still trying to get my my uh, trying to figure out that Petra Kvitova head. But um, yeah, but Sharapova 2016, I think Australia is going to be very, very interesting. Um, there's just something about it that just feels very 2007, 2008 to me. That's, um, that's totally fair. I think that Petra, I think that Maria has set herself up right now off of the fall she had. Very limited fall, granted, but the Singapore playing well, going 3-1 and one there, even though she lost, obviously, in the semis, Kvitova. Uh, for her to go 2-0, and oh, I think she's, like, power rankings-wise, going to 2016, she's the clear number two. Even yeah. though she's even though she's rankings behind Halep, there's no way that anybody should be higher on Halep for January prospects than they are on Sharapova. Sharapova, I think, will is going into the offseason, seems healthy, full of energy everything just seems to be in a good headspace for her you saw how much fun she was having on court and how she seemed to this group of russian players we see her as this like complete island apart from them you know and this awkward she's not entirely you know the perception for her in both russia and america she's not entirely russian she's not entirely american and for her to have this sort of moment of peace which i think was largely kuznetsova inspired so it was good that she was there uh even if she wasn't playing uh it just seemed like she was in a really really good place maria and then you mentioned yeah. Pliskova, who also had a, a just a really, really solid, what's the word for it? Just like a really, really solid cap to her 2015, yeah. which had some up and downs for sure. And this is a very high note for her to end on at the end of what has been a very long song. Because as someone yeah. tweeted, like, she played like 300-something more games than anybody else. Games, I yep. assume, not not sets, not matches, games than anybody else in on tour this year. Uh, yep. And that's crazy. No, the the number of miles she has, not just on her frequent flyer program, uh, but also just in her body with with this respect to how much she's had to do this season is ridiculous, Pliskova. And, you know, she she finished the season well. I mean, she said that her, she and her coach thought that the week in Zhuhai was the best week that she's had all year um, in terms of her level, which is saying a lot, um, considering, you know, the number of you know, finals that she had made before Zhuhai. But yeah, a very good way for her to end her season. And you know, as I was saying on the, the WTA Insider podcast, you know, if in 2016 Pliskova goes on a title tear, if she reverses this whole, you know, one in five record in finals, mm-hmm. um, I think that we can, well, we will look back on this Fed Cup um, as maybe the turning point for her, where mentally she was able to come through in a big must-win, high-pressure, chaotic match. Two must-win matches and singles and doubles, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Beating, uh, being down 1-2 and beating uh, Pavs to level the tie and then obviously pairing up with Streetsova to get the win. So yeah, massive from her. I hope to goodness gracious she puts that racket down for a while and just like hangs out at the beach yeah. for like two weeks. I will not be happy to see her at IPTL. 
No, God, please. I don't even know just, if she signed up for any of those. Excerpts, I hope she I hope she is not, no. I hope she hasn't. So that'll be uh, very interesting. But yeah, 2016 Pova is, I mean, she, you know, she went from going and not playing a completed match since Wimbledon to going, what, one, two, three, four, five, and one against top 11 players. Yeah. Like in six, uh, that, that's it. I mean, she played six matches and she went five and one, right? Three wins in group play at the the finals, and then two at Fed Cup. Yep. Uh, Pliskova's at number eleven, so that's that's a hell of a comeback. That's pretty good on Pliskova. I will say, I think that there, I I expect. Well, obviously, Panetta is vacating the top ten, so there'll be a spot open in there for her, uh, just from that and other players in there. Uh, Safarova. I don't think people are thinking is a sure lock to stay in there by the end of 2016 i'd honestly be a little surprised to see lucy still in there and to see lucy make it back to singapore she could prove me wrong but she didn't do much at the tail half of this year to make me bet on that and halep i i see is you know questionable how she finished and uh venus obviously it's great that she's up to number seven we'll get to venus more later but i think there's definitely room in the for people to move up right now pliskov is definitely with her age with her talent with all the experience she gained this year I would I would be buying Pliskova right For now. Sure. I feel like, which I said this time last year too, and it's uh, it wasn't the quite meteoric rise that it started out as in some par- early parts of the year for her, uh, but definite definite overall big positive year for her. Yeah, and I think also not to to shamelessly plug, but if you listen to the last episode of the WTA Insider podcast from Zhuhai, the one that has the Venus Williams interview, there's also an interview on there with Pliskova, and she did say something that I thought was was quite encouraging because I did ask her, you know, kind of straight out, look, you've played a ridiculous schedule. You've played more tournaments than anyone. You've played more matches than anyone. Your body's feeling it. You're telling me you're running on fumes. You know, are you going to look at your schedule for next year um, and, and tailor back and be more confident in your schedule? Because the only reason that any player should be playing more than 22 or more than 20, 22 tournaments a year is because they're not confident in their abilities to, to go deep at the big tournaments. Because Pushkova did what she did. She landed at number 11 with, like, crap slam results. You're really crap, yeah. You know, so it, one or two things break her way, dif- you know, differently. She's a top maybe seven player. She may have finished even as the number one check, given what happened uh, with Lucy. Or, I'm sorry, with Petra. Yeah, so, so and she did. She said, look, I there, there's a moment where I, she, she kind of, there's this... Uh, look of rueful recognition she's like i shouldn't have to play 33 weeks to be in the top 10 player yeah like i'm better than that you know and and i like that i like that moxie so I, i'm excited to see what happens with her I, I i i like pushkova a lot i like talking to her she's weirdly she has that czech robotic thing when she yeah. speaks but she's actually very funny and uh, you just have to give her a little bit of time to, to to warm up a little bit and her english is fantastic really good yeah yeah, so she's she's underrated. I don't think people, I don't think enough writers talk about her or to her. Yeah, they just kind of assume that because of her demeanor or something that she's like cold and mean or whatever. But she's really funny. I like her. Yeah, no, I I, I totally had that revelation with her when I talked to her way back in Melbourne, I guess this year when I said mm. a story about uh, diverging twin paths and and right. Christina. Christina is still playing pro tennis too, about a hundred spots behind her sister now. But you know that's an interesting sort of factor taken to the Pliskova psychology, I guess. Uh, yeah. So that was an interesting uh, moment for all of them. And I think what really stuck out to me 
in this Fed Cup final is that it was the first final that really felt like it was an actual final of like these are plausibly the best two countries with all the best players as a team. Like this was the first final of one of the in Davis or Fed Cup in so long that really felt like, and I realized it took some roundabout routes to get there, and like Sharapova didn't play the semis, for example. Safarova and Makarov were both hurt, but at least that was both, you know, they canceled each other out, and they were the number two, so it didn't feel as bad, and they both had very legit substitutes in Pliskova and Pavlyuchenkova. But yeah, this is the first Fed Cup final that felt like really mega to me in a long time. Having two top five players play each other, or two top ten at least, I guess Petra's number six, two, it was the first time I looked up that two multi-slam champs had played each other in a Fed Cup final since 2000. That hasn't happened in Davis Cup since like 88 or 89 or something. Wow. When it was Becker against Sweden with Lander, oh. and, Lander and Edberg both on the team that year. So these things just don't happen. As much as we talk about you know, it being devalued, this final, at least for these two days, felt like a very much heavyweight battle that we haven't seen the likes of a lot in these national team competitions. So that part I liked. And uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I it, do, it does make me wish again, it's what we all wish. We all kind of really wish that the players would commit to fed cup and Davis cup, but also on the flip side that Davis cup and fed cup would figure their scheduling out to make yeah. it so that the players could commit to it. Because could you imagine a, a final like us, a full us squad against a full Czech squad? be great that'd be fun a full u.s squad versus a, a full russian squad uh you know who else or like um, semifinals like imagine like a final four right now that consists of the u.s and i realize the u.s is like it's not even in world group with how they're playing these days right u.s russia czechs and let's say like spain germany with spain or germany yeah or like uh yeah these are like if the, all these people are all their best and the best i still think they should condense it into a single location and that's the best shot they have of getting everybody to post up for it is make yeah. it, and that's how they, I was looking back through old Fed Cup results. They did that more recently than I realized. They had it all in one place for different formats. The home and away draw for Fed Cup is a relatively new thing within the last fifteen years, at least. Mm. Um, so I, I I think that it would do well, and just this having this one great final fall into place made me wish that it had happened more often. Because let's remember, it was only two years ago, twenty thirteen, when Russia made the final and sent an absolute joke team. Yeah, final when they sent that was embarrassing. Kromacheva and Panova, I want to say, to play their singles, who were players who were not anything then and not anything now, and harsh. harsh I know. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe, did Klebanova play that? No, Klebanova. Maybe no, Klebanova did. didn't play. Not that time. Yeah, she was in the conversation for it, but yeah. But anyway, that was a disaster, and so I can't be like, "Wow, I feel like I've been saved when that the same format produced that result. Right. Um, so it just happened to break it, break its way, break the way that it did. Just like in this situation with this year with Davis Cup, right? Like yeah. the fact that Andy Murray is involved in this tie is the only thing that's saving oh the Davis God. Cup final. This Davis like, Cup, like the tie. only thing. It's an absolute joke if any other team gets through. It's this Davis Cup tie. I mean, like it's it's such a. <laughs> Britain Britain has It's so laughable I can't even. Britain if they win they will have beaten two legitimate countries or three legitimate really the first three countries they beat were all like okay plus like Aussies did not really I don't think Aussies are a semi-final caliber country in tennis not these yet. days. No, they don't have any they barely have, they didn't have a top 20 player to get them there. I guess they had Tomic once they got to the semis, but they're just not that uh, the French played well, yeah. They didn't have a top ten player, but they're they're a solid country. That's I understand them being a, a good beat. And the U.S. Uh, sent a full team there. 
should have won. Just stop playing DY in singles. I don't know why they kept doing that for so long. Anyway, they get Britain gets there. Belgium is a joke. Belgium has no business being in a Davis Cup final. Belgium, even being being, could theoretically win this final if they can somehow sneak out a single a win against Murray in either singles or doubles, which I don't think they can. But if they do, they are the favorite to win it. They should win the fifth rubber with you know Darcis against whichever you know scrub second player they send out for singles on the British side on clay. Yeah. It's just, can they put Clint, can they put Kim and Justine in? Then I'd be interested. That'd be cool. Right. Justine would get so up. Imagine oh, like... Justine would take it on. <laughs> I kind of want to see Justine <laughs> in there. against Andy Murray, like staring at Carlos from every point, like vintage, like throwback Justine time machine, like Oh six or Oh seven Justine in there. That'd be amusing. Can it just be Moresmo versus Hennon, like now, like for the Davis Cup title? I'm, I'm into that. I would also be down with that. Like that is also way more interesting to me than the prospects of like Andy Murray going two and zero in singles, and how will the Brits get thir- point number three? I mean, that's how Davis Cup is going to come down, right? right. I mean, that's obviously every Davis Cup tie for the Britain for but, Britain. But just yeah, but, just like when I was digging through these past finals in Davis Cup and Fed Cup, it's amazing to me that we've never had with how much these guys play each other incessantly and all of this uh, non-parity we're going to talk about coming up next, that there's never been a Davis Cup final between these big four guys. There has Like, how has that not happened? Like, the way that everybody's taken turns winning, and this is Murray's turn, the same way in the, the same way that it wasn't Sharapova's turn. Like, if this was the men's, the Czechs would have cleared out and let Sharapova win, it seems like. <laughs> yeah. um, but this is Murray's turn to win it, and he's going to win it. Uh, by all rights and yeah it, it just struck me that this format could use so much fixing which i know i say every time but i just i it's tough love because i love you know i'm harsh because i think it can be better you guys don't settle for this final in belgium it's so great when it works so let's try and figure out a way to make it work more often than it's working now yes that's all that's i mean all. that's that's what that's what it comes down to with davis cup and fed cup i love it i love it so much it's always like I say all that, well, no, I'm, that's not true. I'm probably not going to, you know, watch the Davis Cup tie this weekend. But I don't know. Maybe I will. Maybe. But I mean, like. Uh, the fact that we're who we are and we're on the fence about watching a Davis Cup final says a lot. Yeah, I guess. And I mean, I love Andy Murray. Everybody knows I love Andy Murray. I want this for him. Like, it would be amazing for him. But yeah, I don't know. I'm probably going to sleep. And that shouldn't be the case, you know, like that it should be a genuinely like amazing event that you want to cue in and, 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 teen, and tune into and it can be better I it just it, can i, I kind of worry though that this is going to be a final like a little bit like the the czech serbia one was a couple of years ago when lajevic had to play when tipsarovic got hurt where it was like three two but none of the matches were interesting yeah, I worry this is going to be that for for this Belgium Great Britain tie. I think every match will be one sided. Golf fans going to come out and route whatever person gets picked for Britain. Murray's going to pick route Bellman's or Darcy's whoever plays opening singles for Belgium. Doubles will be won by the Brits with the Murray brothers, and then Murray's going to dispatch Goffin with relative ease, and that's going to be over. Eh. Yeah. Anyway, not the most exciting final, but we can move to more interesting at least theoretically men's tennis in london 
Is it interesting right now in London? Courtney, are you are you intrigued? Uh, I haven't watched a match yet. Okay. We're recording this <laughs> so, on Tuesday, so you've skipped, uh, I think, seven singles matches and seven doubles matches at this yes. point. So, okay. Yes. Now, I mean, that's not always, you know, that's not necessarily the tournament's fault. Normally, I'm in, in London covering the event, so definitely have been... Only five, actually, I recount. Only five. Okay. I have been compelled to watch it uh, as part of prior job duties that no longer currently exist. Uh, But no, because A, Race to London was, like, kind of boring. Oh, there was no no race. Yeah, it just kind of, like, here are the eight players that are playing. Like, you know what I mean? And, okay. Um, So there wasn't any intrigue, and so there wasn't any momentum that was built up at all. Um, And then... With resp- and then it's like the same eight players uh, in London, and so far, at least uh, from what I read on Twitter, um, nothing surprising is happening. No, I mean the thing is, I think the way the groups split out this year, I think there could be a couple good round robin matches coming up soon. Namely, there's gonna be Federer Djokovic, I guess later tonight, uh, when we're recording this Tuesday night, and then there will also be Murray Nadal tomorrow, which I, I would watch Murray Nadal. And Murray Ravrinko will happen later on too, um, so those are you know decent matches. And I think it will be better than last year's disaster round robin, where every single round robin match was all, all but all won by the favorite, and all but two in straight sets. And the two that weren't in straight sets were like me- nothing meaningless dead rubber ones with like Chilich and Burdich or something. Yeah, but what you talk about the same players, and it is seven of the eight same players it was last time, or no, is that right? No, six of the eight same ones as last time. With but no first timers. No first like, timers. They've all qualified thing. before. They've yeah. all qualified before, and that's what I was thinking when I was watching it, having just spent a lot of time watching Singapore. And generally, Singapore, even though it lacks Serena, maybe lacks some of that gravitas. Singapore was pretty much wire to wire, entertaining matches. When I was watching Federer beat Burdich for I don't know how many times I've watched that in my life, a lot. I was just <laughs> thinking like Burdich is is such a waste of space at this event in this point of his career. And I realized that Radvanska just won Singapore out of nowhere on like her fourth or fifth World uh, Tour Finals appearance there, championships appearance there. And so that came out of nowhere, and so things can't happen. But Burdich and Ferrer are both taking up spots in this group that make the domination of the Big Four a lot less interesting because we've seen these guys have their chances, have their looks at these top guys so much. Like, we're not getting new challengers to the throne. It's like, we can talk about Ronda Rousey later. I know we have thoughts about that. But it's as if, like, the same challengers to these heavyweight champions kept coming up and kept getting beaten down over and over again, and no one knew ever got in the ring. This this goes to larger picture op, uh, topics about, like, Generation Suck or whatever, where you want to talk about how no one younger than Djokovic has ever won a Masters title, which is an insane stat, because Djokovic is now 28 and a half years old. Um and that should not be the case, but it's just and, the and same. And the fact people. that Novak and Kay are the two youngest people in the field, right? And Novak is not young. Novak, by any other generation standards, would be a veteran, and he is a veteran. I think still twenty-eight, totally a veteran, considering how long he's been on tour. There's just no new blood, and it also, I think, it, you can wrap it into the same discussion uh, of a little bit in terms of ATP staleness, if you want to call it that that the tour finals just got re-upped for London through 2018. And they that will be 10 full years in the same venue, which we've been there. You've been there more than me, Courtney. It's a great venue, great atmosphere 
for tennis, but it's just it all feels the same. It's very same it, at this point. I mean, the sameness, I think, is is really, you know, one thing that that I, I agree 100 percent with everything that you just said. One thing that I will add is that this is kind of the logical result of what is the thing that people really, I guess, tout about the ATP mm-hmm. um, in contrast to the WTA throughout the season, which is the fact that you're like, oh, my God, the number of beatdowns that I've seen from like Roger Federer on Thomas Burdick, like I see it all the time in quarters and semifinals throughout the year. Why do I need to see it one more time to finish the season? Right. That like when you said that, I had never really thought about it. And I was like, wow, like that's kind of not at all ever a thought that happens at the WTA finals. Because it's actually the flip side that finally these players who for some reason they always flame out. Yeah. Like and therefore we don't get to see the top eight players play each other as often as one would expect. Definitely not as often as we see the ATP top eight play each other. So that there is kind of a novelty about the WTA finals because it's kind of like, all right, we've removed all of the stupid speed bumps in the first four rounds of a major. (laughs) We've got you guys here now freaking play. You know what I mean? Like. So, you know, you did have those situations where like, like Halep and Sharapova, first time they played all season was at the WTA finals. Yeah. And that's your number two and three player in the world. Number two and four now. Um, and it makes the event a little more special. Like I think yeah, last year, like, yeah. last year, Halep and Serena, who were one and yeah. three and were two of the big players of last year, didn't play, I think, until Singapore. Right. right? So, and they played twice and right. it was cool and it was eventful. Yeah. And I'm obviously... You know, that's putting too much weight on the tour finals. I think overall, it probably is better to have your top players play each other more. Of and not course. to save it for when they get pulled in the same round robin group. Like, it would have been nice. I, I don't think Nadal and Murray play each other all year, at least on the ATP. So that is one shred of novelty. Yeah. If you can call a big four matchup novelty, we're going to get this week. But yeah, and I'm looking at the rankings. The next two guys in, Gasquet and Songa, I don't think would have been particularly breath of fresh airy. Had they made it in either Gasquet, at least we don't see him challenging big guys ever. Songa is fun, but whatever. Isner was 11. Isner, at least, is sort of a, is a disruptive force. So people would have, I mean, people don't, it's not a fan favorite to watch, obviously, but he would have been at least been a sort of a wrench in the works of this round robin groups. And then Anderson, yeah, I'm, I'm not seeing where the, where the answer is here. And I'm also not seeing who's new. Like I'm scrolling, I get to, you get to 18 and 19, which is Tomic and Pear. And those are the first sort of real wild card people you get. And then Team and Fanini and Monfils. And I feel like you have to go that far down the ATP rankings, number 18, to get somebody who's like, ooh, you know, which is, I don't know. I, 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 maybe that's, yeah, un- maybe it's, it's unfair to the guys on some level. But, it is. Yeah. It, it's, it's not that it's unfair. It's just that, like, this is just what's going to happen. This is the, this is when, the byproduct of, yeah, of, if th- if throughout the entire season, all I see is people loving the fact, right? We always talk about this on this podcast that at the majors in particular, the first week for the men, absolute snoozeville. Yeah. The first week for the women, absolute calamity because there are upsets that happen in the first week of a women's at the women's tournaments. But whereas the men, the guys like roll through without dropping more than like four games a match. Yeah. The, the top four guys. I would even what take that a little means, past first week, like even into quarterfinals, maybe. Yeah, and into quarterfinals, basically, past round of 16. Round of 16 is about when we start to think maybe an upset might happen, but never does. So, yeah, quarterfinals. And then, you know, as the men kind of um, then hit the quarterfinals and semis, they kind of take over because now you're starting to get the marquee matchups. 
that everybody, you know, thinks are the big ones, you know, the big four matches. Whereas the women... Sometimes fizzle. Sudden, right. It becomes a bit of a fizzle because all of that excitement in the first, you know, nine days of the tournament has now led to... Like some, something in Paris this year where we had like a right. uh, Ivanovich-Safarova semifinal, which did nothing for anybody. Right. Yeah. You know, so, so it, it's just... It's not, you can't have it all. I mean, it's really hard to strike the complete and utter balance, which is why I guess my frustration, and I sent a couple of tweets out about this last night, is like you just kind of at the end of the day have to not pick, but I get a little bit frustrated when people just pick and choose, like, you know, like... You can't have your cake and eat it too. Yeah, like the thing is not satisfying to me, therefore the thing is broken. And it's like, that's not the case. It's like, there's a reason for it, but you just have to understand like what the... I just want some consistency. Like I'm on team parody, ride or die. I never like dominance. I like calamity all the way through to the point where I don't mind like, you know, Roberta Vinci, Flavia Panetta finals or Marion Bartoli, Lissicky finals. Like those are fun to me. I genuinely enjoy Once them. Once in a while, they're definitely fun. Yeah. I like them. So like, to me, it's easy. Like I, because I just want every match to be a competitive match. I want every match to be in question. I don't want any match to be a given. That's just how I roll. So that means that like when that does happen, where it is like a, a a final or a semifinal between two randoms, I'm even if my instinct is to be annoyed, I'm not going to allow myself to be annoyed because like that's not fair. I don't get it both ways. Just because something didn't break the way I wanted it personally to break doesn't mean that like there is no value to the thing that is currently happening. So I don't know. I mean, I agree. I don't like that the finals are staying in London. I think that there's yeah, going to get to that the more. minute. Yeah. The minute that I see the guys in suits standing in front of some London landmark, I'm like my brain, I, my eyes just kind of go like zony. I'm like, Oh, I've seen this before. Yeah. You know, they, there's nothing new about it. Whereas I remember when it was first in London, when it had moved over from, what was it? Shanghai. Shanghai. That it was cool. Right. It was like, cool. like here now they're all dressed in like, Hackett suits with like umbrellas standing in front of like a double decker London bus. And now they're in this study and it looks like they're in Harry Potter. And now they're, uh, and now they're playing in this court that's like bathed in blue. And it's interesting. Yeah. It was when, when London first came out a decade or it was awesome. It was really cool. And now I feel like they have added some little things. They have like a new video screen entrance or something and a little video walkway, but it's not enough. Like having been to, WTA finals in two locations now in both uh, Istanbul and Singapore, I see the value of shaking it up and it makes your brand not stale because we have so many entrenched things in the sport. We really do. I mean, like everything, the tour does not shift around. It's not like golf where the U S open is a different location every year and the other tournaments move around like that. In tennis, it's the same things, same circuit, pretty much almost exactly the same order every single year. And so for especially for a brand like the ATP, I think they'd be well served to they don't have to go full WT Asia, but to to sort of follow the markets a little bit and let this thing shift because it's just not it's not growing in London. I don't think it's really not. It's it's getting the easy mark. It's easy staying in London. It's safe. It's it's boring. It's that. But if they moved it and let's say put it had a couple of three year shifts, let it be in Tokyo for three years while Nishikori is going to be. A relevant player or possibly a relevant player even tokyo would come out for this event it'd be great like tokyo would love to see they're going to miss the chance now that 2018 is the cutoff but they would love to see like roger federer and at all come through tokyo or seoul or 
somewhere in China or somewhere, you know, Paris could get a shift and have Bercy in London trade for a while or put it in Germany when Sasha Zverev becomes a big person in a few years, as people think he will. There are just options out there they're not taking. And it's just it's a little frustrating. I get why it works. I get why it's safe, but it's not adventurous at all. And it's not new and exciting. Yeah. And to me, I think that you like I thought I think that like five years is as long as any finals should stay in in one city and five years still to me is a lot yeah. three years is too short i think istanbul could have done one more year um I think four is good i think four is good because the first year you kind of especially in like when because the wta generally is going to emerging markets or markets that are maybe not as familiar with how to run like a massive big event uh like uh, the wta finals so like istanbul year one okay got that under your belt year two was so much better and they seemed to like actually get it and then by three it was like oh and they're leaving so three was a little bit too short i would like to see four five would be the max um but now, yes atp's going moving, on 10 golly yeah it's, it's too much and you know the one thing i, I mean i don't i don't i job aside like i don't regret not being in london this year like because i felt like even for me by the second year that that london trip in the fall became a bit stale because you had what four matches a day you had these really long days the site so far from the center of london um you're not getting any access you don't have any like there's no writing you're actually doing it's a very frustrating actual it's actually a very frustrating week and that's not to say they don't do a great job with it like no it's an amazing event for fans they really do but it's an amazing event for fans it is for fans and for media really take care of media very well there like all the media set up and the people who work there and the you know the bar whatever you want to call it whatever you want to point out is all super for for media there too so i'm not trying to you know i don't want anyone in london organization to, to hear this and get offended it. it's just it's just it should be a rotating thing and it always has been and it's getting stuck at this weird point that i don't entirely get when the att product is so strong when they have this much cachet why not you know move it around and and shake some things up especially like i mean like germany is the one that keeps jumping out of me even though they have no players uh doing anything remarkable in the single side this event would kill there it would do so well in this in this market that doesn't already have i mean now that queens got upgraded London already has a, a 500 and a slam. So to give it the world tour finals too, just seems like, I understand it's a big place for tennis, London, but I don't know. It's, it's too much of one thing. It's hard. I mean, from a business perspective, how do you not like stay in a place that just literally prints money for you and that you can kind of just go on cruise control because it's just so easy to like have the event there and yeah. the market is already primed for it. You sell out things, matches, uh, all of that. I mean, I I totally understand why you'd stay. It's just, yeah, what you were saying. It's like, why not? Like, you know, like it would be, it, yeah. Why not give like this event to someone else? Like, why why keep it in the country that already has a major? Yeah. Like, uh, even just even simple as that. A city and that already now, has a major, yeah. Yeah, a city that already has a major in a country that you know where that their tennis season, that grass season, is now being extended. Um, so there are more turn. There are ostensibly more opportunities to see top level tennis in in the UK now than there was, you know, three or four years ago. So I don't know. Yeah, I'd like to see it go somewhere else. That's for sure. But um, just anything, something to just mix it up. Juan Martín Velopotro, come back. Yeah. No, seriously, that would be. He was a. He was speed a up the wild card. Like, yeah. Do speed something. up the, Do something. 
do something. Speed up the court. Like, I will take that. Even just keep like, it in London, just speed up the court and let's see what happens. Honestly, I would settle for like a new color scheme at this point for 2016. If they sh- yeah. if I showed up in 2016 and everything was green, instead of being blue, I'd be like, oh, yeah, it's green this year. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I would have had any reaction like that this year. Uh, speaking of sameness and parody and all that stuff, we got a question which goes a little bit more to the parody discussion before, but we'll come to it now. From Night Cheese 86, which is a tremendous 30 Rock reference. Working we... on my Night Cheese. In summary, uh, Night Cheese asks us, I'm hoping your memories can serve you to discuss how Djokovic's current level of dominance 2015, in 2015, and in a way everything since 2011, how it feels in comparison to Federer 04 to 07. I imagine there must be arguments for each player's best being most impressive, and maybe there are more best years to come. Uh, so I guess, Courtney, I want to... We can talk about who's, if you want to talk about who's best is better, we can. But I think it's just more interesting to talk about how we're receiving this and I guess our current antsiness and dissatisfaction, if you want to call it that, with how the ATP is is playing out. Because I, I really don't think there was any rumbling of this at all in 2007 when Federer was wiping the floor of people. And I don't know if it's just been too much or you always want what you don't have. And and as before Federer, there was no dominance for a very, very long time. Not the all-surface dominance we see now. Um, or, or what? Why do, you, why do you think that this this level of Djokovic dominance, how is it different than what Federer did? And how, why does it feel different? Yeah, I mean, it feels different simply because no one's reacting. Like in the midst of of what Novak Djokovic is doing in terms of numbers, he's putting together a season that is just absolutely incredible. And he's doing it in a time where, despite what we just said about London, uh, of tremendous, uh, uh, at least at the top parody yeah. among the top five, I think four or five. There's he's, definitely he's not getting parody. cheap titles. He's really no. not. And no. I think that's a big difference between what Novak is doing to what Roger did in 06. Um, in terms of like just the accomplishment of what he's doing. And, and we can weigh in on Novak's year once it's finished, because I think the final numbers will be absolutely um, incredible uh, once those are all done. But the problem is, is that, yeah, he comes in at a time when, I don't know, are people bored with seeing like uh, an ATP player just like run ramshot through the field? For 11 months? Is is that really what it is? I mean, what I think, I'll pass it over to you, Ben, because I think that you had a great – we were talking about it before, and you had a great uh, – I think a great argument about it. Well, what I think it was is that Federer came into the sport at a time when it kind of needed saving. I mean, he came in after a period of a few years that was really the end of an era when Agassi and Sampras were bowing out and there was chaos emerging. I mean, when, when Leighton Hugh was number one in 2002 and before that, when he's winning slams before that, it just did not feel like this was anything that was going to be like a lasting regime at all. Um, and really random slam winners were emerging on all over the place. I mean, you had Johansson winning in Australia. You had, uh, you know, Costa and whoever else winning the French, uh, Gaudio, even though Roger wasn't winning the French, it still was this sort of chaos time. And he came in as this sort of uniter of a chaotic place. And now, and then he had this person in Nadal challenge him very quickly. I think people don't realize when they look back how quickly Nadal stepped on Federer's reign. I mean, there was not a lot of time uh, between, in the rankings, he held him off for a while. But Nadal won his first slam in 05 after Federer had only won four slams so far. So it came pretty early that Nadal was in the picture. And you had these two guys wrestling for it, and it was great. 
And Djokovic stepped up at a time when I think there wasn't dissatisfaction with the tour. You know, when the tour, this is all big picture narrative and it's un, it's obviously not fair to Djokovic. It's not his fault that the tour didn't need saving at this time. And he comes in. If anything, people were happy with where it was. Yeah, people were totally happy. It was considered this great thing ever. And he disrupted it in this way. Um, and and so if Djokovic had emerged five years, ten years later, when Nadal and Federer were both clearly on their way out, uh, he would have been accepted probably again as this sort of, oh, he's our person. He's our new, this is a new Djokovic era and it's great. And I think it just all has to do with people being ready for that or not. And it's not fair, really, because um, what he's been doing is incredible. And he did have to knock those guys off to get there. I mean, Federer wrote in with his really open era. I mean, part of that is just luck for Federer, not luck for Federer, but in the fact that Federer's main rival for the first couple of years was Andy Roddick, who just could not. It was a horrible matchup for Roddick. And Roddick had nothing to beat peak Federer at all. Um, and he, but he also got some cakier draws than Novak has gotten recently at all. I mean, Federer won slam finals against Baghdadis, against uh, Fernando Gonzalez, against Mark Filipusis, against other guys that we don't think of as being slam final contender guys now. Um, yeah, all, all that is to say, I mean, I think that Djokovic, I think as once... Federer and Joe and Nadal, if they do both retire with a lot of time left on the clock for Djokovic's career, as it seems they might, then I think people maybe will be ready to sort of reflect on it. But right now, it just feels like an, an interruption, I guess. I, I, don't, I don't know what else to put it. Which I realize, again, is not Djokovic's fault. I think it just sort of explains that. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really important like narrative distinction to always make with respect to discussing Novak Djokovic, that the circumstances that he finds himself in, you know, when we talk about, oh, he's not as beloved as Roger and Rafa, or, oh, he doesn't, you know, get as big of, like, sponsorship deals as Roger and Rafa, you know, like, all of these sorts of, like, comparisons between him and Roger and Rafa, that it's not his fault, like, really, um, that he, I mean, he the guy cannot do more to quote unquote deserve or earn the fervent following or or the passion or the the kind of like uh adoration that the media showered on Roger Federer back in 2006 yeah. um during his reign um Novak can't do anymore um it's also not his fault or anyone's fault that i think that if you were to poll you know 10 tennis fans at least seven or eight of those fans are probably going to say that it's more aesthetically pleasing for them to watch Roger Federer hit a tennis ball than Novak. Yeah. Like that's not anybody's fault either. That's just, you can't control what, you know, gets you going, you know, like from a, from a, from just a visual aesthetic. And it's okay for that not to be a 50, 50 split, you know, it's, it's, that's fine. it's, It's fine. But what I find to be really interesting with respect to the Novak thing is that the way that he has been virtually ignored across while he's doing it, I think that that's generally been disappointing. I mean, even in, you know, fans are fans and, and they can react how they're going to react. I mean, they're entitled to every reaction that they want. I think that my disappointment sometimes is like when I read some of like the, the tennis media coverage of, of men's tennis or of Novak right now. And so much of it is like begrudging, right? Like even like he goes and wins the U.S. Open, therefore taking home three of the four titles out of the year. And like the lead on everybody's story is like nobody likes Novak Djokovic and he's winning. 
like and 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 it's spun and it's pivoted as like well, but you should like Novak Djokovic like okay fine but like why is that the focus like why can't the focus just be like this guy's level the level of tennis that this guy is playing at right now may be the best level of tennis pure level that we've ever seen it's very possible that that is the case mm-hmm. um and but it's all everything's got to be shrouded in like oh let's focus on one of Novak's flaws to therefore try to make him more relatable or something. I don't know. I don't know what that is, but that was never really the thing with Roger. I mean, Roger's whole thing is I'm perfect and everybody sold that. And it's really, and there wasn't social media, you know, tennis Twitter, quote unquote, in 2006 to shout that down. And like, as one who kind of never really bought into the Roger is perfect narrative. I think my history as a blogger has shown that. Go back to 40 Deuce and you'll find all sorts of that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like I never really understood it, but I always felt like I was in the minority. Whereas now with with the Novak thing, I feel like no, like there is an army of people who are there to defend Novak and to kind of like fix laziness, maybe with 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 the coverage. I, I don't know. I have so many thoughts and they're I, not coming out clearly. I think that we, when we obviously when we did our U.S. Open show, we did talk a bunch about the crowd because obviously it was so striking in that U.S. Open final, especially how much more people wanted Federer to win. And I think part of the reason why Djokovic is being treated like a wet blanket is because he is beating these people who were established favorites. And Federer didn't have to do that. Federer only won one slam final match against somebody who would be in that category at all, which is Agassi he beat once. And for Agassi, it was like a Cinderella run to even get to the final of the uh, 05 Open, I think, when they play each other there. So... Federer didn't have to be the bad guy in this way that Djokovic is having to be. And yeah, we can, you know, fans are going to do what they want. Media is going to do what they want. People feel what they want, whatever. But it is an interesting thing just to go back on our conversation that I don't know if people were bemoaning, you know, the staleness of the tour. Because it wasn't stale back in 2006, 2007. Yeah, because it felt new to have a dominant guy. A dominant guy. Yeah. And a guy who was being a kind of dominant that we hadn't seen before. And Djokovic is doing it. Now Nadal did a little bit the same thing, although Nadal has always had a little more, been less of an all-court player maybe than Federer and Djokovic at their peak. Because Federer's at his peak, Federer's clay results were all really good except for against Nadal, and Nadal's never been great like indoors, for example. But this all-surface kind of guy was new and everything, and now we're just getting sick of it. I don't know what replaces it. I don't know how it shifts. I think kind of Nadal and Federer have to leave for us to get to a clear new era. Um, but but yeah, that's. A rambling answer to what was a fairly simple question. Well, but even if Roger and Rafa leave, like, I don't think that that would then, like, shift everything Novak's way. I think that he's just, I think it's just a question of timing. Like, if Novak comes in to save, if there's, like, a, you know, an 18-year-old Novak right now. Chorich, for example. Yeah, but I don't know. No, I'm not. I'm not going. I don't. I don't like the baby Djokovic analogy there. I think okay. if you have an 18 year old Novak right now, who is going to benefit from an era that does not contain Roger and Rafa, and also an era that has about two or three years where it's going to be complete parody when you have a tour that is ruled by Kaney Shikori, Milos Raonic. Uh, I don't know who else, yeah. but but that's the point. It, there is going to be extreme parity within the top 10. Then you have a situation yeah. that's prime for a savior, right. as it were. It's the same but, way that Kyrgios has been getting all this annoyment right now because he's even though his rankings have never been – he's never been top 20. He's getting treated like this next big thing because we were so hungry for that guy. If Kyrgios, yeah, if Kyr, if Kyrgios had been in this London field 
nothing would seem to matter. We'd have the future ready. It, it would seem everything was right there. We'd have this disruptor, this fresh blood, all this, you know, polarizing as he is. We don't have that right now. If, yeah, if a young Djokovic came in now, he'd be a very breath of fresh air thing that he wasn't really when he did come up. Yeah, I mean, you see that on the WTA because you, you, you know, you look back and you look at like all the excitement every year, right? Whether it's about Sloane Stevens or if it's about Madison Keys or if it's about Eugenie Bouchard or now it's about Garbina Muguruza. It's this thirst for something new and something fresh. And somebody who's going to be young and might be the future. And I think that with the ATP right now, it's hard because, and this goes back to the point about the the sameness, is that it doesn't feel like next year is going to be any different. It doesn't feel like even in two years, things are going to be that much different yeah. in terms of the results that we're going to see. And so therefore, it, it, it does become difficult when you are, yeah, it, it, I don't know. It, it, meh. It's not... <laughs> I just want to eat my double stuffed Oreo that I half opened and tried to start talking through, but <laughs> I got distracted because it's really good. <laughs> I'll let you finish your Oreo as I segue to this next topic. We mentioned Djokovic's year and how great it was, and it really is. And Djokovic got put on the list of, I was a little surprised, but it makes total sense. Just, I was surprised because of his media treatment. But then obviously not surprised once I realized how great this year is that he got put as one of the 12 finalists for the Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year for this year. Um, it's hard to imagine Novak Djokovic being on the cover of Sports Illustrated because he has never been and never even really been close to it, I wouldn't think. Uh, but he's in this shortlist. And also on the shortlist is Serena Williams. And it made me think, even though we talked at the U.S. Open about how Serena's year we think is more impressive because of all the mounting pressure she had, now that Novak Djokovic has continued to play on in the fall, unlike Serena, and it's run the table, racking up titles in Beijing, Shanghai, Paris-Bercy, and now we're thinking, we'd be surprised if he didn't win in London. Let's assume for this argument's sake that he does win in London. Does Has Djokovic's year passed Serena's, do you think, at this point? I think it's an f- interesting question. I'm more inclined to say no, simply because I do think that there's there's a lot to be said about about what Serena was able to do, um, given the circ- her circumstances were very different than Novak's. Um, but it did make me think about whether or not and how different would this season have been had Serena lost at the French or lost at, uh, at Wimbledon, not at the final major of the year. Right. Did not, therefore, have a... a easy out to just shut down her season like Novak lost at the French Open yes it was heartbreaking yes it was soul crushing especially in the way that he did it having it teed up everything everything looked so lined up and then you run into a zoning Terminator in uh, Stan Wawrinka Terminator and plaid Terminator and plaid uh but um you know Novak didn't have an option to shut down his season he didn't have an option to just like you know crawl inside of a hole and disappear for three months that, you know, he had to basically boot and rally. He had to get up, <laughs> puke, go, because the U- the Wimbledon, you know, Wimbledon was just a few weeks later. And the season trudged on. And he had to accept that French Open loss and carry on with his season. And all credit to him, he did. And his reaction to that French Open loss has been just incredible. Um, so props to him. Whereas with Serena, I mean, you know, you furthering the boot and rally uh, uh, <laughs> analogy, um, you know, she loses at the final, you know, the semifinals of the U.S. Open. Um, at that point, in her mind, there's nothing left to play for. This isn't 
8 a.m. or not 8 a.m. 8 p.m. on a Friday on a Friday or Saturday night where, you know, you still got three more parties to hit. Your friends are cajoling you. You got to get going. You maybe went a little too big at the bar and those tequila shots are not going down well. And you really would rather just go home and crawl in your pajamas and call it a night. But it would be wrong. You don't do that on a Friday night. You got to get going. So you go into the bathroom, you boot and you rally and you get it all out of your system and you keep going. For Serena, it happened at four o'clock in the morning. The cab is right outside. Yeah. The, the, the Uber X is like two minutes away, your app says. <laughs> and, you know, and your friends want you to like go cross town to go to some party that probably is going to suck anyway. And you've had yourself a pretty good night. So, you know what? It's probably a hell of a lot easier to just crawl into the cab and go home. And so, like, what would have happened with Serena had it happened, had that loss happened, if the calendar uh, Grand Slam was off the table midseason? Would her season actually have been Djokovic-esque? And would we actually now be talking about her in the same way that we were talking about her in 2013, where she won three majors and won whatever, seven titles, eight titles, Mm -hmm. 11? I don't know what it was, but she basically won everything and it was a ridiculous season. Maybe that happens. But the fact that she, she shut it down and just kind of ended the year on a downer as opposed to like getting herself back up again and flying over as we discussed in a couple of podcasts ago, flying over to Asia and kind of not letting that loss define her season. Um, you know, I think that we're talking about a very different year from Serena. I, um, we all but get, I, I, I mean, comparing between the two is hard. Yeah. We all get why she did it. And I think, oh, yeah. and I don't, I'm not, we're, I don't think we're saying, or you're saying, or I'm definitely not saying she made the wrong choice per se, but you always take the 4am Uber. Exactly. Yeah. Or, yeah, even the three o'clock Uber is a great Uber. Um, but what what Djokovic managed to do in terms of recovery, it's just for 2015, that's it. Exclusive, I think, is maybe more impressive in totality with how he finished, you know, on a sprint and shows no sense of slowing down. Again, he could, even if he loses in London, I don't think it really changes my thoughts on this uh, because he, yeah, he just, he's continued and has momentum going into it and it's not that never really got knocked down the way Serena. And I realized Serena was on much bigger stakes than Novak ever was this year, but never really sort of let them see you bleed or whatever that Serena is doing right now. And it'll be interesting to see. Serena has a lot more work to do to pick herself up and get back going again in 2016 than Djokovic uh, did for Wimbledon 2015 because he posted up right again and kept playing. Yeah, and I think that one other um, aspect that, bolsters the Djokovic argument is you know Serena lost in Madrid didn't play Rome she lost in Toronto she she won pulled out of in, she, she won since she pulled out of Indian Wells yeah um you know she as the pressure was mounting and obviously she needed to protect her body and she's older than Novak is and yeah. all of that's understandable like I'm saying none of these are decisions that I'm questioning but on paper Novak, I mean, he's played the full season. It's not even just that he finished the year and played, you know, like he dominated at all the all the biggest tournaments. He won pretty much everything. The losses were rare. And when they happened, you know, outside of the French Open, they kind of didn't matter a ton. Um, and, you know, what is it? French Open, Dubai. Where else did he lose? Uh, Canada and Cincinnati. Canada and Cincinnati. Yeah, that's true. That, that wasn't great. But, you know, like he... he he never just like, I don't know. You never got the sense from Novak that he just, I don't know, wasn't feeling it. 
And so he just didn't play that week yeah. or had an injury and didn't want to risk it because he was going for so much more. You know what I mean? Like, so it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, I think they're very, they're two very different seasons, but I also do think that one little change, which is Serena possibly losing mid year, as opposed to at the end of the year, I think could have changed and real and aligned their season to be almost parallel. I would agree with that. Uh, I mentioned that they were both nominated for this SI Sportsman of the Year award. Uh, they were two tennis nominees out of 12 finalists, which is remarkable. Shocking, really. I think tennis had uh, the most of any sport tied with soccer, which had both Carly Lloyd and Lionel Messi. Uh, the other people on this list of 12, if you're interested, are Simone Biles, who I'd never heard of. She's a gymnast. Uh, oh, she's, she's an epic gymnast. Yeah. And isn't it B- I think it's B-less. B-less, okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's going to be tough for a gymnast to win in an Olympic year. So she's, I, I don't, I mean, if she want to be bizarre. Uh, Usain Bolt, again, I like that to win in an Olympic year. Steph Curry, who I think was my, is my favorite to win it. This one, or at least who I would vote for if I was not voting for a tennis person. Thomas Davis, who I'd also never heard of, who's an NFL player for the Carolina Panthers. Um, Djokovic, Carly Lloyd, Messi, the fucking horse, uh, the Kansas City <laughs> Royals, Jordan Spieth, Serena, and Ronda Rousey, who, Courtney, I I don't know, we were messaging each other uh, <laughs> as we woke up to her defeat, which happened uh, Sunday in Australia. She lost um, uh, in her UFC title fight to Holly Holm. Is that her name? Holly Holm? Correct. Okay. Um, she lost to her in a second round knockout. And a lot of the reactions I was getting from Europeans on Twitter when I was posting about this was, who's Ronda Rousey? Which is a, made me kind of happy that that was the reaction people were legitimately having. Um, Courtney, can you can you define who Ronda Rousey is and explain, I guess, her explosion in American media? Because what she's, regardless of what we're going to say about her afterwards, what she has achieved in terms of like media prominence is remarkable and impressive, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ronda Rousey uh, is a UFC Ultimate Fighting Champion. MMA, I guess, is the technical term outside of because UFC UFC is the league. Okay. Uh, But MMA is multi... Mixed martial arts. Mixed martial Um, arts, yeah. uh, Mixed martial artist, I guess. And she basically made a career out of herself going into this uh, recent fight against Holly Holm, having just destroyed uh, 12... In, in 12 fights. Basically, she was unbeatable. Um, you could barely get through like 15 seconds with her yeah. before she either knocked you out um, or something. Um, and it was 12 fights that this entire legend was built upon. Um, yes, that is shade coming from me. Yeah, no. And there I, was, I can't help it. And, but... to, and to, to sort of show show your work there, there was like, there was a sports illustrated cover this summer that calls her the most dominant athlete in the world. There were other things that said Deadspin had several stories. Yeah, all these things. ESPNW had voting, and the fans voted her to be the most dominant female athlete ever. Ever. Twelve fights, you guys. Twelve fights. Which over the course of only like three or four years. Yeah. And and more to the point for me, in a sport that is completely unestablished, as well as it's doing now, there is no history or no context to anything that she's doing, in my humble opinion. Yes. No, I mean, I, you know, and, and so, yeah, I mean, she so she gets knocked out by Holly Holm. You know, I have never really been on the Rousey train um, as a woman like, uh, yay, 
there's a woman out there who's making people feel like ladies are badass. Cool, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say because I I watch MMA. Uh, my dad's a big MMA fan. And we always watch it. It's like on like Spike or something TV <laughs> like every night. So I've watched a lot of mixed martial arts because um, we also used to watch boxing and I'm a bit of a boxing apologist. Um, so it's not about the beating up of people that I have like a massive issue with, although she does have an issue of issue of personal violence. So I yeah. think that that's where things get really dicey, not unlike a situation like Hope Solo. And you can go back to my rant about Hope Solo during uh, back in the spring um, about her and uh, why everybody's ignoring the fact that she's in the midst of a domestic violence dispute. And Rousey's case of it's just kind of odd because she's the one It wasn't like she's the one who was like telling everybody about it initially. Right. It was in her autobiography that she was, like, spilling the beans on this for whatever reason. Yeah, and so it's, like, weird to celebrate that, right? I mean, especially at a time where, you know, obviously it's not the same, but it's it's not black and white either. It's not, like, two different things, men's domestic violence versus female domestic violence. So anyways, um, you know, obviously, so she loses. She gets knocked out. The entire internet and people, everybody's, like, basically pulling the ha-ha like you know there was which so is much schadenfreude which is which is a bit much yeah um because at the end of the day i think and i have issues with ronda rousey and all of the, the but i don't have issues with her like girl you get yours you were basically in a lot of ways 80 percent of the ronda rousey narrative is like a media construct like for whatever reason the media decided to make ronda rousey like that what she is and she you know obviously rode that wave and that's fine but i was like uh, but I, I just couldn't get over the fact that this was a thing that it was like basically created out of 12 fights and out of a sport that doesn't really exist, which is women's mixed martial arts, which means that there isn't really competition. And if there isn't competition, how can you really consider it like all that great of an achievement to win 12 fights, regardless of how you won them? I mean, and when I was messaging with Ben, it made me think back to, like, for example, the women's U.S. soccer team. Back early, not now, where parody is a little bit better now, but it's still a bit of a joke. But back in the day, back in 94, back in 99, um, you know, like in 99, when the U.S. women's soccer team won the World Cup, obviously it was a great event. And it changed so much about women's sport in America. But was it actually that big of a deal that they beat China in penalty kicks and won the World Cup? Not really, because they were so much better than every other team in the world. Um, it's the same reason why women's hockey is under threat of being taken out of the Olympics because the U.S. and Canada dominate it and there are no other teams. Nobody else, no. There's no one else. It's the reason why softball was taken out of the Olympics because the U.S. basically dominated it. There were no other teams. There weren't enough players playing. So it's not a real sport. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 it... Olympic women's basketball is a little the same way and that the U.S. Yeah. is it. And you had a great analogy about the dream team or about yeah. basketball. Yeah. US basketball. yeah, like when the U.S. wins in basketball, which they do almost all the time, when we didn't win, I guess, in 04 in Athens, they had a disaster where U.S. men's team lost to Puerto Rico, which is just embarrassing. Um, that's like not even a country. Uh, the That's like the U.S. losing to New Jersey or something. It was really shocking. Uh, the... <laughs> No, we like got upset about that, but when we win, there's not this like I don't think there's not this like massive ex- exultation. It's like yeah, you're kind of supposed to win because we understand that basketball is still fledgling. It's getting much bigger, and this will not be the case. Maybe it's already not the case. Maybe I'm giving world basketball not enough credit, but at least in the next you know few years, the U.S. had a huge head start on this, and so we don't talk about that being the most dominant thing ever. If you do, you understand why. And for Rousey, yeah, it was just a lot of premature crowning, like in this ESPNW poll she beat a lot of people who were like 
you know, easy Hall of Famer. She beat Serena in the final, and Serena um, was actually leading in that poll, in that vote, until the Vinci match happened. And then the the tide quickly swung, and it's like, well, Ronda's undefeated. She's never been beaten. She can't be beating Ronda. And she's like, like there's no sample set for her. There's, there's no sample set. There's no Vinci in in MMA because I honestly don't know. I've lo- tried to look this up, and I think it's something like 100. I don't know how many professional women's fighters there even are. You know, tennis has like a thousand. The rankings go down to like a thousand. It's been a sport forever. It's the biggest women's sport in the world. We know who Ronda, who, sorry, we know who Roberta Vinci is. We have a body of work to study her. We don't really know who any of these female fighters are. And the hype machine on it was incredible and good for her. Like I said, I applaud the hype. She's a fighter selling pay-per-view tickets or purchases, whatever you call them. And so she has to go out there and, and mark herself up. And yeah, just the way that the media bought into it, which I'm sure not a coincidence that she was a pretty charismatic blonde American. All that stuff helped her too. Um, the way that people completely bought in was, yeah, surprising and i guess it's the same way i guess maybe to bring it back a little bit Djokovic and federer i think the media was the sport of that or women's sports coverage whatever was very ready for ronda rousey like she hit the perfect time oh for sure where there was this like opening in this emerging sport that really hadn't ever had a men's star that really crossed over into anything that i can think of i mean i don't i certainly don't think any of them would have been on the cover of si ever anything like that uh yeah, I think that she came at the right time and she capitalized on that and she shouldn't be mocked for being a loser just because she lost one fight and she's now 12 and one. That's still good, but it's just never, she never should have been in these conversations that she was put in originally. Yeah. And the reason why I think that we're, people might be wondering why the hell are they talking about a random American MMA fighter on a tennis podcast? I think the reason why is because in a year where, you know, everything was happening with Serena and, you know, she was building all this momentum into the into U.S., into the U.S. Open. And she was, you know, it was a time, you know, when we were discussing this back in the day about, you know, 2015 being kind of the Serena Williams coronation, that this was her victory parade in a lot of ways of like reminding everyone and forcing everyone to really stop pause in the sporting world and appreciate what she her body of work over the course of her career and that she is still you know, whatever, after, you know, over a decade of playing in this sport, playing through generations of greats, that she is still the greatest. Obviously, we can talk about her versus Steffi and her versus Martina, but outside of those three, that she was very easily, you know, being the best that's ever wielded a racket, you know, playing at a level, you know, Hmm. I mean, you know, anyways, but all this is happening. And I got to sit there and see like all these people talk about Ronda Rousey. Like that was what was so frustrating to me about the Rousey narrative was that it just really took hold. People bought into it. People were convinced fans and writers that somehow she's more dominant as an athlete in her 12 fights than Serena Williams has been over the course of her entire career. 16 years. 16 years, especially right now, when she has, in order to do what she's done, she's played over 800 matches. Ronda Rousey's fought 12, well, now 13 times. But, like, in the course of it all, she has fended off Hall of Famers, greats, um, you know, players who, if not for Serena Williams, would have been, like, had ridiculous, you know, Grand Slam resumes. (laughs) And she's done it all and she continues to do it. And she was on the verge of something incredible. And she was still getting outvoted in freaking fan polls in favor of Ronda Rousey. And that would just piss me off. Like, 
on such a massive level. And, you know, and Rousey did come in a good time. And obviously, you know, everything kind of her legend, as it were, built up steam this year because this has been a year for American sportswomen, right? Rousey, U.S. women's soccer team, uh, Serena, obviously, Venus to end the year. I mean, the the U.S. women have really, you know, taken things up a notch when it comes to 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 the attention that they, they get, especially back here in the States. But man, I had such an issue with the way that she was being covered in the exact same way that I had an issue with the way that Hope Solo was being ignored um, throughout the U.S. Women's World Cup run. Um, and just, uh, I don't know. I'm not happy that she lost or anything. Like, But at the same time, I hope that it is an opportunity for people to really stop and like, let's make sure that when we throw the word greatness around, we understand what that word means. Yeah. There we go. So with that, we... Hope you all know what I mean there and a early rant <laughs> for a regular rant. But in the meantime, thank you guys very much for listening to this episode of No Challenges Remaining. If you want to follow along with us when you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can follow us on Twitter. NCR underscore tennis is our handle there. You can also subscribe to our show on whatever your podcast app is, including iTunes where you can leave us reviews and stuff on the iTunes store. And we think that's awesome. If you want to send us a question for an upcoming show, we'll be doing lots more questions uh, in the next few weeks as the off season ramps up or ramps down, whatever the off season does, uh, please send them to us. Best way to do that is no challenges remaining at gmail.com. Courtney, what's your rant today? My rant slash rave is, and I know that like not everybody gets Netflix but if you can, I had a feeling this was coming. I know. Please binge watch. Take the time out. Actually, don't binge watch it. Savor it like a fine wine, um, and watch Master of None on Netflix, starring Aziz Ansari. It's his new um, uh, show for Netflix. I think there's ten episodes, mm-hmm. maybe, and just debuted, uh, I guess, last week or a couple weeks ago. It is phenomenal. And the thing that I will say about it is, you know, it's a little bit, it can be up and down. Some episodes are better than others. That's okay. That's usually the case when you, especially when on Netflix shows, I found more so even than on, on regular TV shows. But um, it is for me, the best and most accurate representation of modern Asian American like ness on anything that I've ever seen on TV or in movies or anything. And that's not to say that it's about being Asian American. Cause it's really not, uh, it's not like fresh off the boat. It's not like a thing that like carries it through, but just the way that he interacts, the way that he is like, I think that, I don't know. I recognize so much of myself in just him and his friends. And my sister has said the same thing. My cousins have said the same thing. Um, it just really hit home. It's funny. It's sweet. Um, it's sad. There's all these sorts of things, but I highly recommend it. And I don't know if it's getting as much like publicity, I guess, as you would see from other Netflix shows. So I just wanted to make sure that people know it existed. Master of None on Netflix. If you're overseas, find a way to watch it. You will love it. And every single episode and every single moment, you can just imagine me making the Aziz Ansari yum yummy face uh, <laughs> because just watching him eat and get excited about food is also one of my most favorite things. Um, and random Aziz Ansari fact, it's not really random. Most people who are fans of him know this, but he's dating one of the the chefs at um, at Milk Bar uh, oh. of the Momofuku clan. Like, so he that dude is like a foodie. So, yeah. Anyways, um, 
it's great. He's adorable. I heart him very much. And um, one thing that I will also say about it, it's great to see him not be over the top Aziz, which is kind of what he was in Parks and Rec and what he is kind of in his stand-up comedy, like a really amped up, like, yeah, energetic, had a few too many Red Bulls, ridiculous person. He's like a normal person in Master of None, and he wears it well. It's it's a very cool show. I'm two episodes in, so I'm taking your savor oh, approach. The second episode so is good. everything. It's so good, and I totally I totally get what you're saying, and I agree with the everything about the representation about Asian Americans. I mean, I remember very clearly. I think it was the day they got rained out at the U.S. Open. I was watching TV at, at the place in New York, and there was a commercial break. And there was a commercial with like an Asian guy in it. And then later in the commercial break, there was another commercial with a different Asian guy in it. And I was like, oh my gosh, two Asians. This is like so many Asians. And then I was like, it was only two. Yeah. But it felt like so much. The underrepresentation is incredible. And this show, I think, because of that and because of just the general tone of it. And like you said, his sort of toned down, his worldview is still there, but in a much more digestible uh, pace maybe yeah. uh, all of that. It's a very breath of fresh air. So I would totally, yeah. totally co-sign that endorsement. Yeah. And I would also say too, with respect, cause I don't want it to, I, cause I'm very like wary of making it sound like, Oh, it's a show about Asian Americans. It's not. But what the thing that I loved about it is that there is nothing about like, basically, Hey, the modern Asian American, we're pretty normal. Like we're not all that different from a non-Asian American, from a white person, like we kind of aren't, but we are. And um, because we are Asian, we come from Asian parents, immigrant families. And so I think that Master of None really captures what that means. Like the second episode, I think is really key. Um, and uh, and then just throughout it, like we reference our Asianness a lot, not in an overbearing, like super weird way, but it is a part of us. And um, so just the way, yeah, Aziz handles that um, and brings it up and cracks jokes about it and yeah, like deals with casual racism, active racism, all these sorts of things. It's just really great. It's so smart. And it's just Ugh, so many instances where I've been like, oh my God, yes, that is exactly, I've experienced that. No, it's been good. Because Aziz wrote a story for, or an article for the New York yes. essay, I guess, for the New York Times about it, which is also great. And it's a good companion before, during, or after you're watching the show. Yeah. And he talks about the sort of concept of like, why does he, being an everyman? And Aziz, I think, on the show, from what I can tell so far, is a very everyman sort of character. He sort of dissolves into the show a little bit. He's just a dude. Yeah, he's just a dude. And why can't that dude be Indian, you know? Right. Why, why does someone relatable have to be and not just has like, been a white guy for so long? Right. And not just like, why can't he be Indian? Obviously, there are like minorities who play roles on TV. But like, I think back towards um, um, Sandra Oh, who played Christina Yang on Grey's Anatomy. Mm-hmm. Love Sandra Oh. But Christina Yang could have been not Asian. That was just, she just happened to be Asian. But there was nothing about her character that was Asian. Like, you know what I mean? Like, she didn't. I don't know, maybe some stuff with her. I stopped watching after like <laughs> the, the Denny debacle and the George Izzy bullshit. I stopped watching. I, was gonna say, but, I don't like, remember you ever talking about watching Grey's Anatomy. No, like the first two. And honestly, the only thing that hooked me into that show was A, that it took place in Seattle. B, that um, the opening song and the opening scene of the show is a Rilo Kiley song called Portions for Foxes, which is one of my favorite songs. And so the, just using Portions for Foxes roped me into that freaking show for like a year and a half. But anyways, but there's nothing Asian about her. Whereas like Aziz, he's not playing like an Asian person, like going around, like being like 
it's hard to say this, like actively Asian, like in a way that like most Hollywood roles are so one dimensional when it comes to Asian people. Yeah. But he's also you couldn't replace Aziz with a white person and have them just read those lines and you wouldn't re- notice that it was wrong. He is he is pl- he is an Indian guy. In that role, but it, it's three dimensional and it's. I don't know. It's hard to explain, but please watch it. Tweet me. We'll talk about it um, because I don't know that many people who have watched it yet. So, yeah, please do. There you go. Um, my my rave will be small and not just a rant rave, uh, whatever, uh, which one of these classifications it falls into. Um, but I'm moving soon this fall. And so I've been in a very, very slow process of packing and moving within D.C. So I feel like uh, not compelled to move like super quickly or i have to get everything on a truck by a certain day i can do it in like 10 trips if i wanted to and just like the amount of stuff a person accumulates in their life is completely shocking i'm just looking at like piles of clothes and i probably own like 45 t-shirts at least really because i feel like i've only seen the five i know there's a lot of there's <laughs> on a, rotation there's a lot of ones that are like I, I don't even like that much enough to like pack for trips that i've just never gotten rid of and i feel like i don't know should i be now is the time sort of, Right. Should I be expecting some sort of catharsis through this or, or not? Or just is overdue? I don't know. I think because I haven't grown height wise since I was like 13. So, um, yeah, I think that I've, I've accumulated stuff that's been staying wearable for me by the definition of fitting uh, for that long that it's sort of horrifying. I don't know. And so I'm trying to figure out, I'm reading this like book that I've heard good things about the decluttering your life book with the Japanese woman, I think wrote it. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So I'm doing that, putting all the clothes in a pile and deciding whether or not they bring me joy article by article. It's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. You should. It's good. Like, honestly, decluttering is awesome. It's the only thing that I like about moving is like just putting yourself in a situation where you're having to throw things out and kind of condense your life. And the biggest thing about it is that once you actually do condense, condense your life, like, and get it down to the essentials, you realize that like, you don't need that much. Yeah. And that in its own way is a very like enlightening place to be. My my problem is that like, I have so many concert t-shirts that some of the, they don't even fit anymore, but they're like souvenirs. So I've like literally, three or four boxes of probably over like a hundred t-shirts that I never wear. And that I probably will never wear ever again, but I can't like throw them away. They're like ticket stuff. Like active souvenirs. Yeah. That's, that's kind of different. Yeah. But, but it's fun to like go through them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so it'll be good. I, I, uh, I was thinking I might, I have so much like tennis random swag crap. I should do like a tennis. I don't want to say yard sale. Cause I don't want to make money off this. I don't think anybody would pay for like, or maybe they would for like a 2013 Davis Cup yearbook or whatever. Um, so oh, I need to do that too. There's yeah, so much, so much yeah. stuff. So if somebody in DC wants to come by with like a big box and take tennis stuff for me, feel free. And with that, we'll leave you guys free to live the rest of your lives without the show. We'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.